Good morning. Now, if you open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, I'd appreciate that. As we're going to continue a new series, it's going to be a short series of prayer and fasting. Help us to see the importance of that in our lives. Uh, just three, three short weeks. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're just desperate? You're, you're just in a desperate situation. Maybe it's been a car accident, some kind of accident you've been in. Maybe it's a bad health report. Maybe it's a loss of job. Maybe it's something else, or maybe it's a bill that came in the mail that you weren't expecting. You don't have the money to pay for it. And right now, you're somewhat in a desperate situation in your life. And when you're in that situation, what do you do then? What do you do then when you're in that desperate situation? Did, did you worry? Did you come up with solutions to try to solve the problem? At what point in that process did you think to pray? At what point was it? Is, is prayer the first response in your life or is it the last resort? Maybe when somebody shares with you they have a challenge in their life and they're going through a difficult time, maybe one of those desperation times in their life, and you're thinking, how can I help? And you look through all the different ways of you thinking about helping them, and finally you say, I, I wish I could help. I wish I could do more. At least I can pray for you. You ever find yourself saying that to someone? At least I can pray for you. But in reality, it's just the opposite. That's the most we can do for someone, right, is to pray for them. Do you realize that? That's the most you can do for them. Prayer must be our first response rather than our last resort in praying for people. And I want to drive this point home in Acts chapter 4 this morning. Uh, it's not an unfamiliar passage. Let me give you a little bit, bit of a background about this. The book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles, and it is that, but it's more than that. It's really Acts of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he's been ministering now for many days with his disciples, challenging and preparing them, the disciples, which are going to be the apostles, to be able to lead the church in his absence. And he was going to leave them, and this ministry was going to be theirs, and he's preparing them. So Acts chapter 1, Jesus told them, stay here, and the Holy Spirit was going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? So they stayed there, and they waited. In Acts chapter 2, it happened. As the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, the start of the church, and the Holy Spirit came, and he's been with us ever since then. And so Peter on that day, he stands up and he preaches this wonderful message about the gospel of Jesus Christ, how he was crucified, and how wicked men had done that to him, that crucified Jesus, and yet was all part of God's plan. It was according to the foreknowledge and predestined plan of God. And Isaiah said the same thing 800 years earlier, talked about Jesus coming and this happening. And then as Peter uh, kind of shared that message, preached the gospel message, at the end of that, 3,000 people, 3,000 Jews came to know Jesus Christ, their Savior, and the church was off and running. We don't know how much longer after this it was in Acts chapter 3. Could have been a day, could have been a few days. But a few days later, Peter and John are going up at 3 o'clock in the afternoon to go pray at the time of, in the temple at, a prayer, at the time of prayer. And as they're going up there, they come to this gate beautiful, and there's this man there that had been carried there, presumably for many, many, many years he had been carried there. He could not walk. And what they would do, they would bring him there at this place, and he would have a can or a hat, and they ask for some money. And here comes Peter and John on their way in this pathway, and this man is standing there, and he asked them for some money. And Peter says, silver or gold I do not have. What I have I will give you. He grabs him by the hand and says, the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
uh, walk. And the man gets up, a man whose legs could not support him. He's never been able to stand on his legs for over 40 years. All of a sudden, he gets up and walking. He didn't get up wobbly and weak, but the Bible says he gets up walking in the temple, walking and jumping and praising God. Full strength in his legs after not walking for over 40 years. For all the people who saw this that was in the area, they had seen this guy every day for years out there. They could see this guy could not walk. So now they see that he was healed. They see it. They see it with their own eyes, and they believe what is happening here. So Peter and John make their way into the temple area, and this man is coming with them. They go to Solomon's colonnade off from the temple, and many people have gathered to hear them what they're going to share. And this is now Peter's second opportunity to share a second message, right? And he does that. And Peter preached and told him this is all done in the name of Jesus. And he preaches the gospel. And many more people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And what a day. At the end of the close of the day, you, you say the city seems to be very happy. Seems like everyone should be happy. Because now the church has grown to 5,000 followers of Jesus Christ. So everyone's happy, right? They've watched a layman lame be healed. He can walk now. Everybody's happy except the religious leaders. The chief priests, the Sadducees, and the leaders of the temple are not happy. Why were they upset? Because they could not control Peter and John. They could not control Jesus as well. He interrupted their system. Uh, the religious leaders talked about an outward righteousness, and Jesus talked about an inward righteousness, and he talked about how they could have a, a, fa have a faith in an eternal God, a belief in an eternal God. And the religious leaders couldn't match that, nor could they control that. So they wanted, what, what they wanted to do is delete the name of Jesus from the first century. They thought once Jesus was gone, once he was dead, he was gone. But he wasn't. The Holy Spirit was still here, and he was changing lives. And they couldn't understand that. So they took Peter and John, and they had them put in jail. And had them stay in the jail overnight, not really knowing what they're going to do with him. So the next day, the religious leaders meet, and they bring out Peter and John, and they bring them out, and they ask them a question. And they say, tell us by whose name or by whose power did you heal this guy? Kind of a setup for Peter and John, right? And they, they start off by saying, we did it in the name of Jesus. This is Jesus who you rejected and crucified and who God raised from the dead. And salvation is only found in the name of Jesus. That's not what the religious leaders wanted to hear at all. They didn't want to hear that at all. But the religious leaders are right now in a tough spot. What are they going to do here? They want to put pressure on Peter and John to stop this. But if they know they put too much pressure on, they're going to get in trouble. Because the people that saw what they'd done, that that man, they knew that that man was lame. He could not walk. And now all of a sudden, he's healed. And they saw it with their own eyes. They believe. So if they put too much pressure on Peter and John, it gets out to the people. The people will revolt and come against them. They'll lose their position of authority and maybe even lose their lives. Back then, people would drag you out and stone you if they didn't like what you were doing. So we were concerned with that. So they decided what they do and putting pressure on, they were going to threaten Peter and John. And they tell Peter and John, says, we're asking you and telling you, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Don't bring up that name anymore. And Peter and John respond that we have to obey God rather than man is what they say. And that's one of the occasions of Scripture where you find that the, the kind of the priority of authority comes through very clearly. That we always have to obey God rather than man. Amen? We always have to. When it comes to the decision, who do we obey? We always have to obey God. But before we get in this passage today, I want to kind of take a detour. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, didn't you already do a detour? This is another detour that I want to talk about. Because when we get into this passage, I, I don't really understand this thing, persecution because I've never experienced persecution really in my life. Most of us have never have. 
But I thought about it. I said, maybe some of you have experienced some level of persecution. Is when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And, and you're, because your family, you have this religious system in your family. That when you accepted Christ as your Savior, maybe they kind of shut you out. Or maybe especially when you were baptized, you were showing, I'm really committed to Jesus. I really want to follow Jesus. And they really shut you out. So maybe through that, you've experienced some level of, of kind of religious persecution because of Jesus. I have not had that personally. I've not faced persecution at all in my life. I've had doors slammed in my face because of the name of Jesus. I've had people get really, really, really upset with me because of the name of Jesus. But nothing really to speak of. But there are people around the world or being persecuted and tortured and put in prison and sometimes lose their lives for the name of Jesus. They've lost their lives doing what I am doing right now, right here, or preaching and teaching God's Word and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all I'm really experiencing today, I don't know about you, but it's a little hot out here, and I feel like I'm sweating a little bit. I might have to wipe the sweat off my face. That's all I've got going on right now. That's all the little drama that's going on with me. I don't have to worry about someone going to crash through those doors, come in here and arrest me and take me off to prison and torture me. I don't have that. I have the freedom to preach this today. And I say this with you before today, before we get into this passage, because I never want you to forget that the freedom that you and I enjoy every day that that freedom that we enjoy is not enjoyed by 70% of the followers of Jesus Christ around the world. So we are the minority that share that freedom each and every day, only 30% of us. And I share this not to make you feel bad about yourself or feel guilty. No, that's not why I share it at all. Because I understand what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, pray for your rulers so you can live peaceful and quiet lives with them. So we're to pray for our leadership so we can live in a world without persecution. Why? Why do we do that? So we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we do that, right? That's why we like the freedom. So we can share the gospel. We're open to share the gospel. Many of those who don't have the freedom that we have each and every day are being tortured and put in prison because they share the gospel, because they have the boldness to share the gospel, even though they're going to face persecution. Even though they may face imprisonment for life or, or lose their life, they still share it. Where, where 90% of those who are free in the Western world will never, ever share the gospel of Jesus Christ with one person. Can you imagine that? Not one person. So we use our freedom, the freedom that we have, for our own comfort. That's what we use our freedom for. That's what we use it for. Even the Christians, we use our freedom for our own comfort. And someone said there are two churches. There's the church that is free, and there's the church that has been persecuted. Uh, the 30%, the 70%. I would argue there is one church some are free and some are persecuted, but we're all one church. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who have suffered so greatly for the gospel of Jesus Christ, where you and I don't. We're able to come here and share it each and every day, not only here in our children's and our student ministry and our small groups and whatever we do, we're able to share the gospel with our neighbors and no one's coming and some people may not like it and reject us, but they're not coming and pounding down the door and taking us off the prison or beating us or anything like that. We have that freedom. Secondly, let's use our opportunity and this freedom to share the gospel. God has given us this freedom, guys. You, you'll know that ultimately the freedom that we have has been provided by God to use it for his glory, to share, share that. Have you found Acts chapter 4? Did you find it already? Coming back to the passage now. Three lessons from the church, three lessons concerning prayer. Prayer must be our first response rather than our last resort. You got the big idea, right? So the number one, our prayers should de uh, de demonstrate our dependence. Our prayers should demonstrate our dependence on God. Let's read Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 24. 
says, on the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported that all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together and prayed to God. There has to be a dependence on God. Uh, dependence is what drives us to prayer, and the early church had that. You got to have a dependence. If you don't have a dependence, you're never going to pray. And, and I love it when they were released, they went to the friend's house. I am a big proponent of small groups, always have been, small groups, Bible studies, and I would encourage you to be in those because when we're going through a difficult time, a hard time, a desperate time, that's when we need that small group to be there for us that can pray for us and help us through those times. And it's not going to happen by accident, those, that's not going to happen. It's going to happen intentionally getting involved in those small groups. And sometimes it'll be us ministering to someone, but many times it could be people ministering to us too, right? And we need to be involved. So we have in the fall, and then next month in September, we're going to have a sign up for small groups. I would encourage you to be a part of that. I'd like to see everyone be involved with that because that's the time we're going to be able to share our burdens and hear other people's burdens in prayer requests and be able to be there for each other. But we find they prayed. They prayed together out of dependence, and which is so good. It wasn't the first time in the last church was going to pray, right? And when you look at the New Testament, you find they prayed. They prayed everywhere. They prayed all the time. They prayed on the side of a river, on a road, in the temple, in the synagogue. They prayed for healing. They prayed for direction. They prayed for, prayed for guidance. When they were separating leadership in Acts chapter 13, they prayed. They were constantly praying all the time is what we see in the book of Acts. The early church constantly prayed. Abraham Lincoln said many years ago, he said, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I've had nowhere else to go. And that's what has to drive us. In our lives as Westerners with affluence and, and freedom, we don't have the stimulus of dependence, do we? We don't really have that to, to lead us, that stimulus to, to, man, I really have dependence. Because if something happens in our life, if we have a problem, what do we do? Write a check, take out the credit card, or take out the debit card, don't we? We were taught that at a very early age. We're to solve our own problems, what we're able to do. We're to solve our problems. And then if we can't solve our problems, then we might seek out help, right? We might humble ourselves to seek out help. And then if that help doesn't help us, then just maybe we'll pray to God. And we wait to all that. Why is it in our Western world that the knowledge of our own dependence has to come through personal crisis? That we realize that I'm dependent upon God. Are we not just as dependent as our brothers and sisters around the world, except we don't recognize it, that we depend upon him? That we need God each and every day in our life? Not just when our resources run out. We need God each and every day. We need to have that communion with God, don't we? We need him to guide us and lead us and direct us in our lives each and every day. And sometimes we don't think we need him. And we wonder why, man, why did all of a sudden this happen to my life? It went astray over here. Because sometimes we think that we can live this life apart from God. And someone once wrote, only the helpless can duly pray. Prayer should be our first response and not our last resort. When something happens in your life, the first thing, man, we need to pray. I need to pray right now. Not go tell everyone else. Let me pray first to you, God, because you're the one that can make the difference, right? You're the one that has the power to do it. So ask you, you may lead me to other people, but God, I'm first going to come to you. I'm going to include you in my situation because until we pray, we don't include God in our situation. We don't include him in the time of our need or whatever we're going through. So we need to include God and we need to start out with praying. That should be our first response instead of our last resort. The second lesson concerning prayer, our prayers should reflect our beliefs. Should reflect our beliefs. Acts chapter 4, verse 24. It says, when they heard this, 
they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And when I read this, I always think, I, we don't really know how this happened. I mean, how do you raise your voices in, in prayer? They all praying together. Uh, they didn't distribute a three-by-five card. Here's what we're going to pray, so you guys make sure you say what you've got to say. They didn't do anything like that. It seems like they prayed at different times, but it seems like someone was leading in the prayer, and at the end, they all said, amen. Let it be so. Let it be verified. We, we all agree is what they were saying. But they prayed, is what we see. And they prayed together. They answered the threats that they were having from the religious leaders with prayers. That's how they answered them, with prayer. And their beliefs they prayed. Let's read what their beliefs were. In verse 24, they said, Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They said, Sovereign Lord. They were saying, Lord, you're in control. You're in charge. And these leaders that came against us they need to know that you're in charge. We submit to you. We know that you're in charge is what they were saying. Because, read on, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. God, you are sovereign in control. You create, you are the creator of all things and you're the sustainer of all things. That's how they're starting out their prayer. Great prayer, right? Recognizing who God is. You're the creator and you're sustainer of all things. Then they folks, uh, verse 25. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. They're about ready to quote from Psalm chapter 2, and they use the word servant here. In Psalm 2, it uses the word son, referring at times to David, but also referring at times to Jesus. Ultimately, is referring now to believers, back then and now, to believers, for all of us. And what they were doing in their prayer, and they're saying, Sovereign Lord, we know you're in control, and you've got a plan, and we trust you. That's what they're saying. We trust you. And so in verse 25 and 26, they're quoting from Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Let's hear the quote, what they're saying. So why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. It is interesting when you read these words from Psalm 2, written about 950 years before Jesus ever came to this earth, yet it's talking about the time period in which Jesus came to this earth, is what they're saying. What they're saying, why did the nations rage? And what it's talking about there is the Romans wanted to put Jesus to death. The Gentile nations, putting them to death is talking about. It goes on and says, the people's plot in veins. Perhaps Israel, the Jewish people, plotting to put Jesus to death. It was their plan. It started with them. The kings of the earth, certainly at that time, was here at Antipas. He was the tetrarch of the region is talking about. It goes, they're going to take their stand. They're going to take it together. And the rulers gather together. Ultimately, it tells us later, Pontius Pilate, they have in mind, that's doing this, against the Lord and against this anointed one. They came together. Why would they quote a passage like that where you've got two guys who got into trouble because they're bold in sharing their faith in the name of Jesus? Why would they quote that passage of all these other passages? So they pray together and say, Lord, we're going to answer our threats with prayers, but they pray, Sovereign Lord, you created all things. You're in control, and we trust you. And here's what they're saying. Something similar has happened like this before. In the past, it happened with Jesus. That was predicted 950 years earlier. And God, if that didn't catch you by surprise, what happened then, what happened today doesn't either. We trust you. If you had that what happened to Jesus, you've got what happened to us. So we trust you. See what they did there? That's what they're saying here. If you, that didn't catch you by surprise, we trust you. And that theology that they had, 
that shaped their prayers at that time is now going to shape their prayer request or what they're going to ask for because they're given their belief system. This is what we believe. We believe this about you, God. So therefore, it's going to shape how they pray, right? And so what do they pray for? That's our third point is what they pray for. So our, number one is our prayers demonstrate our dependence. Number two, our prayers reflect our beliefs. The third lesson concerning our prayers, our prayers expose our priorities in our lives. Our priorities. Notice the priorities in the prayer request. Verse 27 and 28. And they start mentioning these people that I just mentioned. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided before should ever, beforehand should happen. What are you saying, Sovereign Lord? You created all things. You're in control of all things. And you had a plan. You had this great plan is what they're saying. And in your plan, Pontius Pilate would be used. Herod Antipas would be used. The Jews would be used. The Romans would be used. But ultimately, it was your plan to accomplish your will. Some, the same thing is happening today, right now in our lives. And we trust you. We trust you with it. Because we, see, we saw what you did back then in their lives, in the life of Jesus. We saw what you've done, and we know what you can do. So we're going to trust you. You're going to do the same thing for us today. So understanding their belief system, understanding this, now they're going to give the request. Here's the request in verse 29 and 30. So they say, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And you want to stop right there and say, What? You're asking for boldness? Isn't that what got you into trouble in the first place? Isn't that the reason you were arrested and you had to spend a night in jail and you're asking for boldness? Why would you ask for boldness? To expand the kingdom of God. To be able to share the gospel. Notice what happens here. Verse 30. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, <clears throat> Jesus. They're asking God to stretch out your hand and do miraculous signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Show this. Show us. That's what they prayed for. That's what they prayed. And their prayer was answered. In verse 31, look what happens. <clears throat> After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, you may be more spiritual than I am, but if I was one of those guys who was bold for Jesus and I spent a night in jail, my prayer may not be like that. My prayer might be, Lord, I come to you and those guys, what they did to us, put us in prison, and, and what they said to us was, was unkind. They're wrong or we're right. I didn't do anything wrong. I did everything you told me to do. I didn't hurt anybody. You healed a man through, through us. You did that. And now these guys have come against us, and they told us not to preach in the name of Jesus. God, I'm just asking you to take care of the situation, that you remove them from the situation. You just remove them. Whatever way you want to do that, God, that's up to you, Right? Wouldn't that be your prayer? They need to go so I can continue to minister. Unless they go, God, I can't do it. My hands are tied, but I can't do this. That's not what they prayed at all, is it? They didn't pray that at all. They prayed for boldness to continue to do what got them in trouble. God, help us to be bold. Even though people are threatening us, help us to be bold. They didn't ask for those people to be removed. They didn't ask to get them out of the way or anything like that. And what I learned from this is Christ's kingdom has to be more important than my own comfort. It has to be. It has to be. If I pray for my comfort over Christ's kingdom, then I'm out of whack, and me and the Holy Spirit are not on the same page. So Christ's kingdom has to be more important than my own comfort. It has to be. That's what God wants. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, I pray that uh, 
you would be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And so I thought about that. And I said, what about you? How does your prayers reflect your biblical priorities? The expansion of Christ's kingdom or is your prayers mostly for your own comfort? Think about that. When you pray, what are you praying for? The expansion of God's kingdom, that the gospel may go forth and God use us and do this? Or is most of your prayers for your own comfort? So I can be comfortable. For me, is that how we pray? God answered their prayer and he gave them boldness. Before, he did, before they did anything else though, what did he do? He shook the building in which they were in. Now God didn't have to do that, did he? But he wanted to show them, he wanted to give them a sign, your prayer is answered. I'm going to give you exactly what you asked for. Can I give you two cautions with regards to the shaking of buildings? Let me give you two, two cautions because people read into this so much. The first is other than it, when the building shakes to run out and get out of it, right? That's the first thing, right, to tell you. But let me share things. I don't think it's ever wrong to ask God for a sign. I don't think it's right to demand it, that I demand God to give me a sign. See, people who demand a sign and say, God, you do this. If God, if you're real, I want you to do this in my life, comes very close to presuming on God, and we're not supposed to do that. And many people that use that in normal practice in their life, there's a lot of people that do that. God, show me a sign. Show me this. And they use the proof text as an episode in the life of Gideon in the Old Testament where Gideon asked God to show him a sign through a fleece, right? But I don't think that was ever, episode was ever meant to be used as proof text for a normal living of today. God didn't want us to take that in the life of Gideon. Says, now everyone use this. Every time you pray, ask God for a sign. I don't think God ever meant that for our life. There may be, may be times in your life where God leads us to ask for a sign, but I don't think it's right for you and I demand a sign from God. God, show me a sign. I have to be honest with you. There have been times over the years where maybe it's in my spiritual dryness. Well, I've came and I've asked God. I said, God, I don't really see your hand at work lately. And I need to know that your anointing's in this place. I need to see the Holy Spirit work in this place. Would you please show me, if you will? I didn't demand it, but I asked him, would you show me? And sometimes God will show me, not through shaking the buildings, at least not yet. He's never done that for me. Shake the building. Oh, God, I got your, you got my attention. But usually the way God shows me is through a changed life. If someone will come up and share with me what God is doing in their lives. Or, or somebody will write me a note and share what God has done in their life or what he's doing and stuff like that. And it does that. So sometimes God will show us a, a sign. But don't demand it. You can ask for it, but don't ever demand it. But when God does show you a sign, don't deny it. Don't deny it. To, don't say it's not real, but accept it. Now let me pull this together in the last 30 minutes we have together, right? You all together? No, we're, we're about done. Nobody, nobody kind of look. oh, wow, 30 more minutes. Let's make our lives really, really count. That's what God wants. That's what prayer is supposed to do. Make our lives really count. It's not going to be working harder and, and trying harder. That's not how it's going to happen. It's going to happen as you and I get on our knees in dependence and prayer before God. That's how it's going to happen. On our knees in dependence before God. We align ourselves with the Holy Spirit. We align ourselves with what He's doing, with His agenda is what we have to do. We have to come and say, with Christ, as we're praying that Christ's kingdom is more important than my own comfort, I'm praying for things like that. God, I want, I want to see your kingdom expand, even if I'm not comfortable. Even if you take me out of my comfort zone, am I right with that? Even if I have to suffer and persecute in some of those things, the expansion of Christ's kingdom is more important. Well, you may not realize that, but it is. It's more important. That with Christ's kingdom is more important than my own comfort. And sometimes we have to ask ourselves, God, what needs to change in my own life? What needs to take place in my life today? <clears throat> Help me to get there. What do I need to step into? 
Do I need to get involved in the, in the church, using my gifts, being used by God to expand his kingdom, to serve other people and minister to them? Lord, what do I need to do to really make my life count and make a difference for Jesus is what we have to ask. And I think the first step that all of us have to take is on our knees in prayer and dependence on God. Amen? That's where we all have to start. On our knees. If you say, man, what do I have to do? Get on your knees in dependence. That's where prayer shows it. That I surrender. I surrender to God when we come in prayer to God. I surrender my thoughts. I surrender my ways. I surrender my motives. And God, I'm surrendering to you on my knees in dependence on him. And second, our prayer should reflect our beliefs. Do we really believe God? Do we really believe he's the creator and he sustains all things? Do I really believe that God is powerful enough to help me in my own situation? So our prayer should reflect our beliefs and our prayer should reflect our priorities, demonstrate our priorities, that God, your kingdom first before me. Does it really reflect that? That God, whatever you ask me to do, I'm willing to do. That God's kingdom, building his kingdom is more important than what's going on in our lives. And sometimes we miss that. We think that God's here to serve us, to take care of our lives because our lives is what's the center of the universe. But God is the center of the universe, right? And we are here to serve him. And we come before him and pray to God, say, God, what would you have me to do for you today? Not God, what I want you to do for me today. Do you understand the difference? And in doing that, we align ourselves with God and God will lead us and guide us to accomplish his will and take care of the very needs of our own lives. But we have to align ourselves with him, realize he's the center of the universe. In a couple weeks after this series, we're going to be talking about Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Spend a few weeks on that. And we're going to talk about the omnipotent God in creation. And we're going to talk about that. We'll get more into that, what I was just sharing. But when our prayers, we have to come before God in this series, this three-week series that we're doing, that we realize, realize the importance of prayer in our lives that nothing's going to happen in our lives unless you and I are on our knees in dependence on God and saying, God, what would you have me to do? How can I live my life for you? And so I pray that this series, that these next three weeks that you and I would spend time with God in prayer, becoming a normal practice in our lives, that prayer would just continue. Not that we don't pray once in a while, but we pray and our prayers reflect our beliefs and expose our priorities. That our priorities be right, that God's kingdom before my own comfort. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you come. And Lord, it doesn't matter where we're at today. What matters, I mean, where we're at yesterday, what matters right now at this very moment. We may not have prayer. Our prayers might have been all out of whack, different from what you have. But Lord, I pray right now that you redirect every one of us by the power of your Holy Spirit and see the importance of prayer in our lives. That our prayers reflect our dependence on you. That, Lord, every one of us have to be dependent upon you. And we pray to you, God, we're showing that. We're demonstrating in our life that, Lord, I need you. I need you in every area of my life. And I pray that for each and every one of us, that our prayers reflect that, that we're on our knees, dependent upon you, God, for every detail, every decision, every direction, every guidance, everything that I need in my life, Lord, I'm dependent upon you. And, Lord, our prayers should also reflect our beliefs, if I say I really trust you, God, I really believe that you're a creator of the universe, you have omnipotent power, do my prayers reflect that? Do I really trust you? Am I really trusting you with the situation? Do I really believe that Jesus is the only way? Do I really believe that, Lord, that one day I'm going to be with you in heaven? Do I really believe that my prayers should, should uh, uh, express that, demonstrate that? And Lord, my prayers should reflect my priorities 
that I have in my life or what's first in my life. And I pray that for every one of us. That, Lord, our prayers would demonstrate that you are number one, that you're first. And everything that we're doing, Lord, whether we're at work, raising our children, raising our family, whatever we're doing, we're trying to build the kingdom of God. We're trying to expand the kingdom of God with our family, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with our friends, with everywhere we go, we're trying to expand the kingdom. That's our job. May our hearts and minds be about your kingdom and put you first. And everything else, Lord, would take care of itself. Let it not be our prayers only about our comfort. I mean, there's times, Lord, you know we have to pray for, for ourselves and stuff like that. But that may not be the, the bulk of our prayers. May our prayers center upon you, who you are, and what you want to do in our lives. So we're praying for your will to accomplish in our lives. We're praying for other people that don't know Jesus Christ, their Savior. We're praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ that you would help them. That our prayers would be about those things, Lord, uh, about eternal things, things that are going to matter not just for this life, but for eternity. Lord, I pray, and it all starts with, Lord, in our prayers, is we surrender everything to you. Whatever is going on in our hearts and minds, whether it be difficult time, hard times, good times, whatever times, financial difficulty, whatever it may I surrender it to you and say, God, I surrender everything to you, and you're going to guide and lead me. But I'm going to put you first. I'm not, not going to stop serving you. I'm not going to stop living for you. I'm not going to stop giving to you. I'm, I'm going to serve you. And out of that dependence upon you, God, all these other things you're going to take care of. They become secondary. And we watch this. God takes care of one at a time. But help us get his focus right. Help us this morning, Lord, we start with our surrendering to you. And Lord, you might use this as an opportunity to drive us to our knees, our dependence upon you, and it would change our lives from the inside out, Lord, becoming more like Jesus every day. As we've seen the example of Jesus, that he depended upon you every day of his life. May we do the same. So I ask, Lord, as we sing this song, I Surrender, that we really surrender our hearts and minds. It just wouldn't be words we're singing, but it would come from our hearts. That every one of us would, in our hearts and minds, be humbled before you and surrender to you and look for God, you to do great things in our hearts and minds. We love you and we praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.